0: Welcome to Just One Q, the podcast where we explore the latest ideas in workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion in conversation with thought leaders and DEI experts. Each episode, I ask our guests one key question, and let's be real, a bunch of follow-up questions highlighting their area of expertise in DEI. The goal is to leave you with the tools and insights that you need to drive change in your own life, both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Dominique Attrell. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion educator and advocate working for the DEI and e-learning consultancy Dialectic in Guelph, Ontario. On this week's episode, I am joined by Janine Manning. Hi, Janine.
1: Hi, thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, no worries. It's lovely to have you on the show. Janine Manning is Anishnabe and a member of the Chippewas of Nawash Unceded First Nation. Janine recently legitimized her side hustle, and she is the founder and principal consultant of Janine Manning Consulting, and she is on a social impact mission to decolonize and indigenize everything, or at least philanthropy, grant making, and fundraising. As the chair of the Laidlaw Foundation, Janine is the first Indigenous person to chair a private philanthropic foundation in Canada. She is outspoken about diverse lived experience in leadership in the philanthropic field. Janine also survived 10 years of middle management in the charitable sector, and her professional experiences and Indigenous values of abundance and reciprocity inform her DEI and reconciliation work. Janine has an Honours BA in Environmental Studies, Politics, from York University, and a Certificate in Social Sector Management from Schulich School of Business. Janine is known for her captivating speaking engagements and speaking truth to power, and the occasional unapologetic LinkedIn post. So once again, Janine, it is great to have you. And after that long bio, I hope that our listeners have a sense of who's in the room with them right now. You have such a depth of experience, and it's really a privilege to speak to you today.
1: Miigwetch. Thank you for those very kind words and for taking the time to read that bio. (laughs) You're so (laughs) welcome. I hope listeners get a sense of who I am, what I do, and what my professional mission is.
0: Absolutely. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Certainly the question that we're going to explore today is how should we, and by we, I really do mean non-Indigenous people. How should non-Indigenous people carry truth and reconciliation into the rest of the year? Of course, we know that we've just celebrated Orange Shirt Day and Across the border. Indigenous Peoples Day has just happened as well. So people have often in their workplaces been, um, at this time of year anyway, reflecting on what it means to be sort of an Indigenous ally and to bring some of the truth and reconciliation calls to action into their workplaces. So often this feeling spikes and fades. And so today we're just going to be sharing a little bit about what we can do to make sure that we're carrying that intention and the actions, and the follow-through through to the rest of the year. So before we dive into that, I would love to hear a little bit more about who you are and how you've carried that into your career, Janine.
1: So I will say that I went to university as a mature student. I had a pretty rough go. I um, Rough start to life, leaving home at a very young age, 15 years old, and leaving high school. So, when I went to university, I was 29 years old with a three month old on my hip. And I was very determined to, you know, break the poverty, the cycle of poverty in my family. And I was quite content hairdressing, bartending, waitressing until I had my son. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really, the words of my great grandmother and the importance of education really started to resonate with me. So I pursued my undergraduate degree. I graduated from university when my son was only four years old. So I actually went into law school, and I did my best for two years as a single mom. Mm. Um, it was quite unique to have my son start JK while I was starting at law school. Coast. So as you can imagine, that was quite a big goal I had set for myself. Unfortunately, financially, I couldn't maintain the commitment. And so I left a couple of years in. When at that time... The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was just releasing the report. So throughout the latter part of my undergrad and, and my couple of years at law school, the TRC and the survivors were doing their work. The work that, you know, has led to our ability to really reflect, learn, accept the teachings those survivors gave us and move forward with this roadmap and the reports that the commission worked so hard on. So I feel like I always thought, you know, my calling was to, you know, to be an advocate. And that meant lawyer to me. You know, there's so many other ways in which you can be an advocate. And so I just found that when I left university and I was on my, you know, career path, that it was the TRC, it was the calls to action that really kind of steered me down a path as an educated Indigenous person, as people were really looking at the call to action number 92 and hiring Indigenous folks. And I found I went through various um, places of employment and and it was all about, you know, indigenizing or or, um, decolonizing or reconciliation work, which I found as an advocate, I was up to the task. But I wasn't really up to the task. It was quite a journey of burnout um, because the eagerness of folks to check off these calls to actions was... um, A lot lot of folks, organizations, didn't take the time to reflect on what that really meant, the deep meaning of, like, you know, when Honorable Murray Sinclair said, you know, it took us many, many years to get into this mess, and it's going to take just as many to get out. So I found I ended up working for a lot of well-intended organizations who just were too eager, and as the only Indigenous person or the only one responsible for the reconciliation, um, you know, portfolios it was very difficult um it was a struggle so
0: yeah and i mean i've heard similar things from folks who work in di in general where they feel like the entire load is on their shoulders there are such an ambition and yet there's a lack of resourcing so i can only imagine if you're truly the only indigenous person in an entire organization that that feeling is just so magnified right and that your passion is then kind of almost turned against you or you have to bear the weight of your own passion and feel like if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. And that, you know, I can totally imagine people taking full advantage of that and being well-intentioned in doing so. But I'm sure, you know, that stretch of middle management that you describe, I'm sure that that was a very challenging time.
1: Yeah. And I think my biggest struggle was that organizations didn't want to go uh, and do the internal reflection mm. of, you know, I'm we're a granting organization and we, we've been in business for 50 years. And, you know, me as the reconciliation liaison, and I'm saying, let's look back. What have you done with Indigenous partners? How have you supported them before we move forward? And I found a lot of organizations were like, no, 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 this is the starting point. We don't really want to reflect on what we didn't do or what we did do because, you know, it was always, we never did enough, but, you know, to build relationships and trust with partners, any partners, not just Indigenous communities, you really have to reflect and say this is how we've done harm or this is how we've looked away this is how we we you know these are missed opportunities yeah. but we are acknowledging those and then to help that feed into you know your path forward together and i just found a lot of folks were like here it is mm. here's the here's our goals for the next four years you know and very chunked and and, and you know this is, it's, it works a little bit different time and the concept of time with indigenous folks and communities you cannot put a time frame on building a healthy relationship, right? It takes the amount of time that it takes. So yeah, time was always a challenge, the KPIs and how do you measure trusting relationships and healthy relationships and, you know, the emotional toll too, right? I am a descendant of survivors and, you know, just like those folks in DEI, many of which come from communities that have been oppressed or marginalized, we bear an emotional um burden doing this work. And I just found it was very heavy a lot of times to, you know, help folks on their journey when I too was on a my own personal healing journey. Mm-hmm. You know, many Indigenous folks after TRC came out, it was very difficult for us to listen to the stories of survivors and then to reflecting on our own family and the impacts, intergenerational impacts, but then to also have to go to work, you know, and for me personally, and I just want to say that I I'm one Indigenous person of many, and so my reflections are just that, but I do, as a part of my general healing journey, share a lot of my story. Like, I don't shy away from saying that I left home as a teenager, I dropped out of high school, like, that is part of what shaped my journey to where I am today, and I feel sharing my story often helps others in doing the same or understanding they're not alone in the situations that they might not have had control over. So for me, I bring a lot of my own experiences, my personal or my family experiences to the work. So sharing that impact context is very difficult. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's that I feel, you know, the TRC commission, the survivors, you know, paved this, opened up these doors to... You know, new relations and with Indigenous folks that, um, and I find that that's kind of where I've
0: been creeping yeah. down
1: those paths there. Yeah, Yeah.
0: I love that you're bringing out the, these ideas of, first of all, it takes time. This is not something that has started with the TRC and it's not something that will end in a few years. It will not even end once those calls to action Are met, like there will be more calls to action and it's ongoing and like this constantly evolving and renewing relationship, right? And I love that you've also brought out this looking backward and the idea of having to sort of take time to reckon as organizations with our failings and how that should be the thing that is informing our present and our future, that it's not enough to just start, okay, we're going to. This year we're going to do something for orange shirt day and off we go to the races i think that is a very common attitude and it's a proactive attitude but maybe it's not always the most productive like there is this room for reflection that people can do on their own and perhaps even um, before engaging right but maybe it's the steps that we don't see that come before the visible first step um am i hearing that correctly
1: Yeah, so I think, so folks really love to jump over the truth and dive right into reconciliation because that's the action piece, right? Yeah, Yeah. So folks, they think, okay, the truth came from the survivors, the government apology, the reports. Okay, we know the truth, right? But organizations who are trying to actively get into reconciliation or be successful with Indigenous relations, they have their own truth to tell right? Mm-hmm. And that's the looking back, because we live in a society where many foundations, so I'll talk from the philanthropic sector, you know, have made their wealth on, you know, I'll say Laidlaw Foundation, for example, logging. So a lot of resource extraction and stuff. And so to be in a good relationship with whatever it is, donors or grantees, they want to know that you've done your own recovery work, that you've done your own reflecting, that you're really truly ready to be apologetic for. what you've done to move forward in a good way so I would say that a lot of folks I think they see calls to action like okay there's like 94 we're going to accomplish one and then they're going to go through this checklist right and then Mm -hmm. it's done but Mm -hmm. a lot of these things you know they're not steps they're more you know steps from point a to point b they're steps in a circle You know, Mm -hmm. they have to continuously, you know, be checked in on and renew relationships. As new employees come and go, like who is um, satisfying those uh, relationship obligations and those promises and stuff? Because that's where your relationships with Indigenous community folks, grantees, whatever, that's when it breaks down, is when people are just left, right? It's like you you made a commitment, but then you dropped us.
0: (laughs) You forgot about us. Yeah, yeah. I want to dive. I I love that. I want to dive back in a little bit to your experience. And I guess one way to start this is just to say, first of all, congratulations, because you've just launched, of course, your own consulting business. And I think that a really amazing question here is, why? Why did you go that route? And what can you accomplish as an independent consultant that you couldn't accomplish within consulting or facilitation roles um, within these organizations? So like, I'd love to hear from you what the difference is, and whether you've been able to address some of that discomfort, some of the tendency toward burnout that you were feeling when you were in those organizations as that sole Indigenous person bearing all of this weight? Is there a, a weight out for mm-hmm. you as a sole consultant?
1: Yeah. So let me just say that the last like paid nine to five I was in wasn't, uh, I wasn't the only Indigenous person. Mm. I actually had actively looked for a role in fundraising because I found that was my blind spot in the social sector. I had Went from Indigenous relations to Indigenous relations and granting in the public sector to, you know, philanthropy. And then I was like, fundraising, you know, that's such a huge part of philanthropy. And, you know, so I kind of flipped the switch instead of like, you know, grant making or being the grantor. I mm-hmm. was then, you know, the fundraiser and doing those applications. And it served me very well, I think. So I, I now feel like I have this package. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that gives me that unique experience that I could kind of go out on my own in consulting. And so, you know, what's the difference between like nine to five and and consulting? Well, I was side hustling consulting for a while because I found people were tapping me on the shoulders quite often to speaking engagements and run workshops and do trainings and stuff. But I always had this fear of instability, right, and coming from poverty and coming you know, struggling as hard as I did. When I was in university, I was still using food banks. Mm-hmm. And so going from, you know, like releasing yourself from a nine to five job and the benefits and, you know, the RRSP contributions, it is a very, very scary, scary step, especially for me as a single mom. I think it was the encouragement of other consultants and colleagues in the sector were like, I think that you would do very well as a consultant. So, you know, I moved away. I moved up north, uh, Mm. closer to my community. So I now live in my traditional territory. I live in Owen Sound now. And it was very important for me to create my own life work balance that I could not do as a nine to five on somebody else's schedule and expectations and deliverables. And, you know, COVID was great because it opened up so much opportunity for me in an equitable way. Mm. Um, You know, as a single mom, I didn't have to pay for daycare, didn't have to pay for lunches. I, I saved a lot of money. And I did not want to go back to the office. I did not want to go back to having to have all those expenses, not after yeah. the freedom I had gotten. So, yeah, the difference is I can be I can be vocal. I can do this. I can talk about, you know, issues in the sector and very frankly, without fearing what my employer thinks or if I'm misrepresenting them. And oftentimes I would have to ask, tap my employer on the shoulder and say, I'm going to be speaking at this conference or I'm going to be doing this webinar and so I'm just wanting to know if you're comfortable, if I can mm. wear this hat, or if I should just wear my Laidlaw chair hat. Right. And, you know, it just got a little complicated and, and sticky. And I just thought, you know, I, I feel liberated when I'm doing my own thing. So yeah, my mental health is improved, my anxiety levels are down, and yeah, the pay is better.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I I have full
1: control over my own schedule, which is so nice because, you know, that's the capitalist system, right? Like you loan your services to an employer for two weeks and then you get paid, right? So I've been able to kind of like up my game in advocacy and really, you know, put spotlights on things that I think... From my experience, need looking after whether you want to call it indigenizing, decolonizing, community centric, you know, all of these different models of philanthropy are essentially saying we need to decenter whiteness and we need to decenter you know, the colonial minded way of being. And much of that is about scarcity and it's competition, you know, where I really just want to work and support folks in building abundance and building community and, you know, sharing the wealth. And this comes from, you know, my teachings in the community about the importance of um, abundance. Like we live in such an abundant country. Nobody should be going without. And the, it people are going without because there's an unbalance right? Mm -hmm. Um, Folks are taking more than they need. And you see this um, in philanthropy, fundraising, grant making, you know, foundations applying for more grants than what they need and sitting on endowments. You see this with grassroots organizations trying their best to compete with teams of fundraisers for the same, you know, funding. And, you know, we don't think about what opportunity we're taking away from others. We're only thinking about you know, we have to get this money, right? Because maybe they're not going to release this grant fund next year and, and stuff. And it made me feel icky as a fundraiser, yeah. knowing yeah. that I was taking from a pool, a limited pool where others, you know, probably could have immediately put the money to use, as opposed to putting it in our endowment and investing. It was becoming very emotionally taxing on me, mm. I think, Um you know, and and trying to think of ways to be a better, more community-centric fundraiser, like, can we donate 5% of everything we raise to a grassroots organization who's working directly with, you know, street-involved folks, like, oh, like, you know. They sound like such radical ideas to other people, and I'm for me, I'm like, (laughs) it just feels like that's the thing to do, because we have the resources and the ability to make that happen, and why wouldn't we? And so I think... You know when there's too many boundaries like that, I just was not thriving. I was yeah. not being able. I was not able to show up as my authentic
0: self. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, you've been, just, Janine, you've been unleashed. Like I just hearing uh-huh. you speak about this, it's what a testament to belonging. First of all, like we talk about, you know, finding your right place in in the workplace a lot, and what it feels like to experience belonging. And it sounds like all of that strain has just gone right off of you and it's out the window, right? Like you're able to just fully align yourself with your values and with your community and to operate in ways that you uh, feel are, are right. What a gift. That is amazing. And I'm so glad for you that you've found yourself in this in this place after having, you know, all of that experience behind you. You're now in this new stage of being able to do work in your own way and in ways that benefit your community. That's a, an amazing story.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I have actually been, you know, supporting my community trust fund in making the process of accessing funding or trust dollars more equitable, accessible and community centric. And that to me has been such a rewarding experience and also a new area of this philanthropic slash granting is, you know, First Nations trust. And so I'm really diving into that. And it's, it's rewarding. That's really mm. at the end of the day, what I want to do is help, or I'd rather say support, I see myself as a helper, supporting folks to build their own abundance and prosperity Um by either directly helping them to do that in whatever it is, a grant writing capacity or a training capacity, or then also on the flip side, supporting, you know, the funders, the granting programs and stuff to see, you know, to, to make their um, processes a bit more accessible. And I think that, you know, even in this, the, the few short years I've been in granting and fundraising and philanthropy, we are starting to see shifts. We are starting to see people really listening to applicants when they say you know this is just it's too much or Mm -hmm. yeah okay the application's easy but what's the reporting like because you know time is so precious for especially you know communities and grassroots who are often volunteers and stuff and so yeah that's that's my my whole goal is to just, if I can, in my own little way, have this impact to help others access that abundance and, you know, folks to, you know, share in, in the wealth and prosperity because there is more than enough to go around.
0: Yeah, I believe it. That's amazing. And I'm I'm so thrilled that you're in that line of work. And I hope that you're able to help your community and people around you access that abundance that you're speaking about. I want to draw from the things that you've said. and sort of try to to pull out some lessons or some, I guess, best practices for our listeners. So when organizations who are predominantly non-Indigenous are reaching out to Indigenous-led organizations or consultants to work with them, whether it's to guide reconciliation efforts or not, whether it's just in another capacity, what can they do to build a fruitful and respectful relationship
1: that's a really great question. Really great, and I'm sure many consultants have their preferenced way. I will tell you that um, folks have been, uh, you know, at LinkedIn. People love sliding into the DMs on LinkedIn, which is fine with me. I love LinkedIn because um, you get to know who people are by, you know, their profile and what they post, and and that's part of being a consultant is choosing who you work with, and so you know, I've had some people who have been very demanding and disrespectful. And I've had others who are like, you know, who have a baseline, who kind of like have a a loose outline of what their needs are. And then others who are like, this is exactly what we need. Mm -hmm. We have an RFP. Can you please consider it? So everyone's on a different journey, whether they're the consultant or someone procuring a consultant. And I think the best way is to just be humble. That's definitely how I engage people, you know, and and never come with the what can you do for me attitude. (laughs) It's like, you know, this, like, obviously, you, you, you know, you must have had some internal conversations, you must have some documentation, some loose outline of um, what you you have done or what you need to do, like kind of bring that to the conversation some folks are like okay so explain to me how you work like it's, you know oh, very demanding right. and trying trying to understand you and it's like no no it's the other way around i want to understand you like i want to understand what your needs are right yeah, um yeah. so yeah i think let the humility come with you know a willingness to 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 learn and to collaborate and partner as opposed to you know demanding exactly how People are billing or I had one 30-minute chat and I was like, this was uncomfortable. I feel like I was just interviewed. <laughs> I didn't right. get a question in sideways, right? Like, right. you know, maybe if there was an RFP and I could have prepared and, you know, but I felt a bit blindsided. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like yeah. I was, and I, I basically was like, I don't think I'm the person for you. But yeah, I'd have just come with humility, try to build a bit of a rapport, know what you're looking for, where you've been. Um, never just throw out that, like, what can you do for me? We're starting from scratch.
0: <laughs> right. Um, That's so daunting. Yeah. I just can't imagine yeah. that. I can't imagine that approach to basically any other type of consulting. Like I just, uh, it would be hard to imagine the personality or I guess personhood of a of the consultant being front and center of an initial conversation in that mm-hmm. kind of critical lens, like for so, for an extended period of time, like, I don't know that that would happen in another context. So I definitely see what you're yeah. saying there. I'm also hearing in your words, something about reciprocity too, just like there has to be mutual value. There has to be, we're helping each other. We're collaborating here, something to the effect of a respect for the person's time and agency and that kind of thing.
1: Exactly. And I will say that oftentimes folks are kind of lost on their reconciliation journey, or they're really intimidated to, to begin that journey. And I know that the um, 94 Calls to Action were not written for everybody. It's very mm-hmm. government. It informs a lot of the government work. And I always you know, refer people to the principles of reconciliation yeah. because before we had the calls to action, we have the principles. And I think if folks are generally in line and understand those principles, they can do very good work or start their journey there as opposed to jumping into the actions, right? And one of the principles that I love and mind you, the principles say Aboriginal in reference to Canadian Constitution, Section 35. <laughs> you know, Indigenous folks are referred to as Aboriginal, but it's also that's, that's a lot of the reports use the word Aboriginal. Um, reconciliation must create a more equitable and inclusive society by closing the gaps in social, health, economic outcomes that exist between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians. And I think that, you know, can be applied to a lot of Fields and not just necessarily the government, a lot of the government facing calls to action. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, it sets some principles about understanding perspectives of Indigenous elders and traditional knowledge and accepting the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as a framework for reconciliation. And so, like, I always refer people to there. Like, these yeah. are the this, the, this is the spirit in which, Your reconciliation work should also be done. Understanding that Indigenous folks are, you know, have been denied um, agency for so long. And so that kind of sets you up for the expectations of your relationship with your Indigenous partners moving forward. Because self determination, treaty rights, constitutional human rights, respecting those and recognizing them is a huge part of reconciliation work. It's not just we hired three indigenous people last year, right?
0: It's
1: It's so much more than that.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a really amazing answer to our main question, right? Which is this idea of how do we extend just these days into something real, something that is kind of long lasting. And what you're saying is not just the tick box exercise of the uh, calls to action themselves, but to really digest those principles and to take a minute to think about how they apply to whatever industry you're in, whatever uh, workplace you're in. And that's uh, amazing. I've actually not heard too many people even refer to the principles. So it's it's interesting to hear you reference those. I think we are so focused on the calls to action. And you're right, so many of those are just government specific. And there is kind of one that's more industry specific that, you know, people feel like, well, if we do, you know, territory acknowledgements, and we do our best to hire someone, or we whatever, like, they just feel like that's kind of that's enough. So I'm happy to hear that there's there are these principles that people can sink their teeth into a little bit, and do some of that exploration on their own time, ahead of engaging an Indigenous person, or ahead of kind of, yeah, having an expectation that somebody, an Indigenous consultant would come along and and do all that heavy lifting for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so I really appreciate that, the pointing to the principles for sure.
1: Yeah, so the consultant should be the guide, not the conductor, right? Nobody, like the consultant is not going to know the organizational values, the institutional knowledge like they will, right? And a consultant will help you shape your work to come but will not define it. And so for whether you're an individual, a professional, a family, like it's not about just like buying and wearing an orange shirt, right? It's about ongoing continuous learning opportunities whether you're you know reading whether you're watching um you know how like are you participating in indigenous events are you learning about the local indigenous communities are you supporting an indigenous or a reconciliation action group at work or the EDI group and because of fundraising I have to say are you donating to an mm-hmm. indigenous um, cause like indigenous issues or causes and I'm using air quotes here just for those of you listening, they are the most underfunded category in Canada Helps. And, you know, only 1% of all Canadian charitable donations goes to Indigenous organizations. You know, that compared to population is pretty low. That compared to population plus equity is pretty low. And then, of course, buy and support Indigenous businesses like Apart, you know, the... um, prosperity gap, or, you know, the education gap, it is huge between mm-hmm. Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. And that has to do with, you know, residential schools and the trauma and, you know, all these setbacks in life, like we did not all start at the same place. No. So like, you know, do what you can and support, you know, businesses. Um creatives and really get out there vote vote in a positive way and yeah do a lot of reflection and you know talk with your children or better yet have your children talk to you because yeah. they are learning in school the At things last. that we never mm-hmm. learned exactly mm-hmm. yeah I will tell you that I know that I remember my great grandma um, talking about school but she never used the words residential school and I wasn't until university that I was like Did did my grandmothers go to a residential school? Because for them, it was school, right? And so, and like, I was 30 years old when I learned that. And now my son, who's 14, is like, he's had that in his curriculum since like, he started school. And I think that's amazing. So yeah, talk to your kids, ask them what they're doing at school, right? And there's just, there's so much engagement. And it's and why not? I mean, and it's not just Orange Shirt Day in September 30th of June. You have a whole month to celebrate with us. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I will say though that September 30th, Orange Shirt Day, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation should really you know, myself and many other Indigenous folks are kind of disappointed that people are seeing it as a celebration or, or like a long weekend. That should really be the time that is carved out to do that deep dive reflection as a Canadian, as a treaty person. What can I do to commit to making, you know, how can I join this reconciliation path? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, June, by all means, come to the powwows. Like, you know, it is the time to celebrate our, you know, various cultures and to learn and to go out to powwows and stuff like that. And, you know, really become a healthy neighbor, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I love that invitation. I'm always so, honestly, like I've stopped being surprised, but I remember first engaging with Indigenous people in a professional capacity Having invitations to powwows, to celebrate, to be part of it. And it's like, really? Are you sure? You know, and I still have this sense of amazement as, you know, non-indigenous person whose relatives are settlers for sure, and who I consider myself to be a settler on the the lands that I am now on. But certainly that invitation and that warmth and that connection is. Such a surprise. And it's that spirit of openness to all nations is something that has been um, Mm -hmm. so beautiful to discover. And so, yeah, just so surprising. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people out there might not be approaching this work, because they might be fearful, like they don't know that that's there for them. They may not know yeah. that engagement is this positive thing that they have a part they can contribute. So if that's you and you're listening, I would encourage you to just take those steps and actually put yourself out there because you're going to find a warm reception. Actually, mm-hmm. um, not that we deserve one, but that's it. It honestly does exist. So, um, so yeah. thank you for for bringing that up as well. That's a really a marvelous reminder to folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um,
1: and you know, sorry to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. um, When folks start looking at the um, principles of reconciliation, number six is a beautiful one. All Canadians, as treaty people, share responsibility for establishing and maintaining mutual mutually respectful relationships and that all goes back to what we were mentioned earlier about reciprocity you know we are in this together we are on this planet together we are in you know we're stuck in this capitalist system together you know ecologically socially and and emotionally we're all interconnected and so we need to think about how can we be better relations and neighbors together. And that's really what I think reciprocity is, is acknowledging, mm-hmm. you know, climate change is affecting all of us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and we, are, we are all stuck in systems together. I mean, the systems might be disadvantaging and advantaged, some more than others but like how do we come together and make it better for all of us more equitable right so yeah that's I just wanted to drop that in about the reciprocity and like it's really about relationships that's what reconciliation is about and you need to take the time so anyone who's on that journey professionally at work and stuff like you know It is not going to be in six months you're going to have an established Indigenous advisory council and you're going to be ready to roll out these. No, 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 no. You need to take time to build those relationships with those individuals that you are asking to be a part of your circle. And it takes the time it takes. So push Mm -hmm. back on the CEOs who say, I need that done by the end of the next strat plan. Like we are so fixated in the Western world and like carving like chunks of time out instead of just l- like freely working through like at the pace at the time that it requires
0: yeah yeah and of course it does take time it's you know relationship building is this dynamic process you cannot force it it happens mm-hmm. in its own time you just have to make yourself available to that process and show up right Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, I love that reminder to try not to connect this to those KPIs and the times and the, you can't make a Gantt chart for this. It just doesn't work. Um, Mm -hmm. I have one last question. We've covered so much, but I want to just give you an opportunity to, to dream a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. Where do you hope to see progress in reconciliation or in decolonization In the next, let's say, 10 years, what would be different about society or the spheres that you work in if you kind of saw it unfold in the way that you would wish?
1: Mm, Oh, my goodness. I could dream for days on that. Well, I would just say, you know, slowly but surely, we are indigenizing, decolonizing, becoming more community centric. I say all those things because people use them interchangeably. You know, we got our first First Nation premiere, um, um, Bob Canoe. And, you know, that is amazing. Like that is Indigenous folks, First Nations folks. That was a huge win for us, right? Like it's always amazing to see yourself there. And, you know, I have role models who were you know the the first in this field the first in that and like um you know it's funny i get a little awkward weirded out when people say oh you're the first chair of a private philanthropic and i'm like am i anyways people the (laughs) philanthropic journalist did a did a search and they they confirmed it. But, and I'm like, that is ridiculous. Why? Like it is 2023. Why are there, why are Indigenous folks still coming into like, oh, the first person to ever do this? It's like, it just shows you how far we have yet to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When, when, you know, people are still um, coming into a sector or coming into a field or position as the first, right? So I would say representation matters. I would mm-hmm. really love to see more opportunities in, uh, you know, the philanthropic sector specifically where we are. Um, that's my cat's meow, and I don't know if you heard where we. <laughs> like, I'd like to see more power sharing, more relinquishing of power. There are a number of private philanthropic foundations who are de-investing their families and they're making the seats more public. And I can tell you, I believe that Laidlaw is so successful with its community that we support. We support youth mostly in Ontario and with our Indigenous Advisory Councils because we, that's their council right? We we exist as a, a governance board, we approve the, the work they do, but we don't oversee it, we don't dictate it, they create their own terms, they get together, and like, because we have said, we want this advisory council as part of the governance model. Um, we want to, you know, like, share as much power as we can within the confines of the CRA or, or whatnot. And so, yeah, I would really love to see more representation, more Indigenous folks, young people um, mm-hmm. welcomed into... Um, Um, leadership positions and, you know, the old guard uh, relinquishing that power and control over the the wealth they have amassed through these tax haven foundations. It's public money. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see more people from the public really sharing in that redistribution of wealth. And mind you, philanthropy is a very small sector of, you know, the uh, amassed uh, wealth in Canada. But I think the same can be said and should be done across like the corporate sector and whatnot we need more opportunities we need folks not just bodies representing but also that there are spaces that are bold brave and welcoming and safe and that folks are not just numbers on the diversity chart but that they're fully supported as their authentic self to show up to work and do good and help you know spread the wealth prosperity and abundance
0: Amazing! It is really lovely to hear you dream like this, Janine, and it's lovely to dream with you about this. I'm right alongside you, and um, I do share your enthusiasm for certainly divestment um, and reinvestment and the sharing of wealth. And it's really lovely to hear you articulate some of those things for the philanthropic sector. Um, as we close, I just want to take I want to take time to thank you for guiding me and our listeners through some of. Uh, what I'm sure to you feels a little bit basic. And to acknowledge that your own work goes so much deeper than just kind of this, okay, how do we do reconciliation at work piece? And yet you've been willing to walk with us beginners and tell us where to get started. And that's a really valuable thing that you've done. And I want to just acknowledge that you didn't have to do that, um, but you've chosen to do that for us today. And so um, I do thank you for it. I wanted to possibly share something for our listeners. And this is something that I will link in the show notes, but something that came to mind in our conversation. And as I was preparing for our conversation, and it is the academic Indian job description, Have to Know, and it is written by Kash Aheneku. And it is a beautiful poem. And it talks about the that complexity that you touched on about being in a corporate position or an academic position or any any position uh, as a knowledge worker and the immense demands on indigenous people within that space it's a really it's a lengthy poem so i'm not going to read it but i will link it and i invite our our listeners to to go ahead and read it because it does really capture some of that tension and maybe spark a little bit of of grace or humility for for folks who are asking so much of indigenous employees in very tricky to navigate spaces so I will point to that in the show notes. And of course, if you want to stay connected with Janine, please find links to her socials in the show notes as well. And Janine, I have one last little bonus question. And I just want to ask, is there any other person or organization whose work you'd like to amplify as we're closing today?
1: Oh my goodness. Well... I want to give a shout out to my um, partner in crime, Rebecca Darwin. She is also a consultant supporting families in philanthropy. Um, she is a co-founder of the Foundation for Black Communities and recently you know a, a new TEDx speaker and a young, just inspirational Black woman that I have really admired throughout the years that we've served on the board at Laidlaw Foundation together. So check out her work. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think I'm probably going to be emailing you later saying, this person, that person, this person. But yeah, I also want to shout out to Evenings and Weekends, who is doing some amazing DEI work. The Kojo Institute, also doing amazing DEI work. And full disclaimer, I'm an associate consultant with both organizations. But I wouldn't be if I didn't truly believe in their anti-oppression, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous racism framework Mm. and the inclusion and the joy that they bring to their their associates and their employees. So check those firms out. So I just want to say thank you for um, contacting me and, and offering me this opportunity. I will say I've never been on a podcast before. So this is a first. And it has been such a lovely experience. So thank you for that.
0: I'm so glad you're a natural and Janine, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, as always, I welcome any of our listeners to reach out to me if you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast or if you'd like to sneakily nominate someone, you can find my email in the show notes. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and a review or share this episode to your own socials. It truly does help get this important message and this podcast into more ears. I'm Dominique Cottrell. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time on Just One Q.